Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Andrew Dinnin, who's the founder, MD and CEO of Sarama Resources, a West African gold explorer and developer focused on the uh, on establishing a new mining district in Burkina Faso with a focus on the Centura project. Um, Andrew has over 30 years uh, experience in the international mining arena. Uh, having worked in West Africa, UK, Russia, and Australia, and has an extensive experience in mine management, operations, and capital markets within the gold sector. Um, Andrew's going to give us an overview of the company um, and what they've been up to, and also what the sediment is like in Burkina Faso. Obviously, we hear many stories coming from the, uh, from the news around Burkina Faso, but obviously Andrew's on the ground there so it'd be good to hear his thoughts uh, and what is happening in the country so that's welcome andrew to the podcast how you doing andrew good thanks rob um thank you for the introduction mate yeah appreciate your time as well um so i wondered if you can just tell us a little bit about your your career um obviously i mentioned you've been in the industry for over 30 years so i just wondered if you can just run us through your career what what you've been doing to uh, to where you've got to today yeah, okay, thanks, Rob. Um, yeah, I, I guess my career spans probably more than 30 years now, actually. So I'm a degree-qualified mining engineer. Uh, I graduated in South Australia in kind of late 80s, um, which is obviously an eternity ago now. Um, I, I joined Western Mining's um, grad program and worked at Olympic Dam. Um, and to kind of give a bit of an idea on that, we were just commissioning the mine then. So and we went through two expansions while I was there. So that was that was all pretty interesting experience. Um, after having worked at Olympic Dam, I, I kind of went across to the gold sector in Western Australia and ran a number of uh, underground gold mines there for, for Western Mining um, at, at Agnew, uh, near Linster, at Norseman, and, and also in, in Cambalda. After that, um, I kind of spread my wings a bit. Um, and really, my last job in Western Mining was working on the sale of the gold business to to the gold fields. Uh, and I went to the UK, um, did a business degree, and started my work offshore from that point. So um, that was kind of around 2000. Um, from there, I went and worked for a private company in Russia, um, which is obviously a, a quite a significant change from working for Western Mining. Um, listed a company uh, in London, um, a, a Russian company. Um, after that kind of ran its course, I, I went back to Australia and based myself in Perth and worked in the Congo, uh, where I ran Moto gold mines. Um, Moto at Moto, we found the Kabali deposit, which is a kind of over twenty million ounce deposit, and I, I think Barrick rated as a you know one of kind of the top ten assets globally, and I think it did eight hundred thousand ounces of production last year. So we took that through to pre-development. We were taken over by Rand Gold and Anglo. Um, after that, we had a bit of time off to decompress and put Sarama together and focused on West Africa and ultimately on Burkina Faso, which is where I'm sitting right now. So 
I wonder if you can give, give us a, an overview of, of uh, Sarama resources, um, obviously from, from inception. Yeah, um, Sarama has been a bit of a journey for us. Um, when we put the company together, we listed it on the TSX. Um, Moto Gold, which I was running, was TSX listed. So a lot of the seed for Sarama um, came out of the TSX. Um, we focused on West Africa and um, put a number of projects together in Mali, Liberia and Burkina. Um, and then over time, we settled in on our best projects, which is uh, in the southwest of Burkina in the Hyundai Belt, where we you know, very much like the geology and, and uh, the prospectivity in that region. And it's a, it's a fairly well-proven belt. Um, so kind of through the course of that time, um, we obviously did a lot of drilling. Um, we had a, a joint venture with Acacia Mining, which was ended up um, being quite restrictive in the end, and we bought them out and so we could move the project forward again. So that that kind of slowed us down a bit for a while. But the, the main project for us is the Sanatura project, so that's in the southern Hyundai Belt. It's about 80 kilometres south of Endeavour's Hyundai Gold Mine and about 150 kilometres south of the Manor Mine. Um, and about the same from Fortuna Silver's Yaramoko mine. So geologically, it's situated, you know, very nicely. That part of the belt has about 20 million ounce gold endowment at the moment, and we believe has a lot of exploration runway. Um, the Sanatura project itself has around a 3 million ounce resource on it at the moment. Um, the uh, the project it, it's, itself, um, we still think there's a lot of exploration runway in that. Uh, the main deposit called the Tankoro deposit runs about two and a half million ounces, sits in a corridor about 16 kilometres long by about one to one and a half kilometres wide. Um, and that the, that deposit itself, if you apply a you know, slightly higher cutoff grade, you, you know, you have a, over two million ounces, over two grams. And the project itself, um, about a third of the resource is oxide. So you know, in the kind of 50 metre range, oxides run to about 50 metres um, and two thirds is over two grams. So it's got a good grade profile and it's got a quite a high uh, high amount of oxides as well, which really has been our focus um, for the project in, in the last few years. Um, we actually did a second listing on the ASX last year. So we're based in Perth and we always have been. So for us, it was kind of a natural progression to pursue that listing. Um, it's a bit easier to manage. And I think one of the things COVID showed us um, was that, you know, managing a jurisdiction on the other side of the world, you know, managing the capital markets is is pretty challenging. Um, so we, we've got the second listing there. We, we raised $8 million with that listing and we put that to work um, straight away uh, in May last year and did about 20-odd thousand metres of drilling. It was all shallow oxide-focused drilling and we made a number of new discoveries and we intersected quite a few zones of shallow high-grade oxide material that it's not currently reflected in the resource, but it will be over time. So I just want to even give us uh, what you've been doing, obviously a project overview, and obviously what you've been doing over the last, uh, obviously, 12 months. Obviously, you mentioned um, the ASX listing. Um, yeah. What about the, the drilling in the PEA? Yeah, the the as mentioned, the, the ASX listing was quite important for us for... Um, you know, recapitalising the company. Um, obviously, things drained down quite a lot through the whole COVID period um, and also the period from when we bought Acacia come Barrack out of the project. So that actually caused us, you know, quite a bit of pain from a delay point of view and, and we still, some of those 
things we're still tidying up in country with respect to you know delays in permit issues and stuff like that but um the what we have been really focusing on is the, the things that you know we can control we can't control the international capital markets but what we can control is the work that we do here so the first part of last year was you know getting ready to do the the dual listing um obviously that's created more work for us and we're still kind of understanding the requirements of you know meeting both exchanges um but that that closed at the start of may last year um a small amount of the well not small reasonable chunk of the money raised went to buying barrack out of our project to take us back to 100 percent ownership um and then we kind of launched into the drill program that you alluded to most of that was air core drilling so relatively inexpensive um and quite fast so we drilled 21,000 metres between kind of May and, and then start of August. Um, once we kind of got all the results in, and that was all in the Tancora deposits, we still haven't drilled our best target yet, which is at Bondi, uh, which is a deposit we bought from Warzone a couple of years ago. Um, but all the drilling at Tancoro, um, you know, it was shallow, oxide focused. We've made seven, set, discovered seven new areas outside the modelled resource. Um, Importantly, we've drilled a flat zone that appears to be in oxides, that's extended the oxides to 80 metres depth, which is good from a mining point of view, um, but it's also very high tenor, um, and it looks quite different to what we see in that area. So most of the Tancora deposits is porphyry dikes, and where we get cross structures and dilation zones, we tend to get a blowout in grade and ounces. Um, this area is a later stage event, that cuts across the the known mineralization. So we're pretty excited about that because when we look for um, analogs in the belt, uh, probably the closest endeavor is Endeavour's Kari pump at the Hyundai mine. And the maiden resource on that was a million ounces at 2.7 grams. So we've only got 5,000 meters into this area. It's blind. Um, so we found it when we were looking for something else. So um, that's, that's pretty intriguing as well. So I think on balance, you know, the drilling went as expected or probably a little better. Um, some areas disappointed, but some areas kind of outperformed. Um, yeah, and, and we put out seven lots of results. Um, probably, I think the best drill hit out of the lot was 21 metres at seven and a half grams from surface. So I think what that does show is that, you know, there's still a lot of potential there and there's a lot of potential to find more ounces in between where we've already drilled. Um, so I guess that's that's kind of the exploration side of things. Um I guess we sat down in the latter part of last year and looked at what we had resource-wise and the resources already through a scale, you know, to support a mine development. Um, and I guess we looked at the, you know, the equity cost of capital and the best way to take the project forward. We did some internal concept work looking at project sizing, ranging from a, you know, 120 to 140,000 ounce a year project down to, you know, kind of a mid-sized project, maybe doing 60 to 70,000 ounces a year. Looked at the capex, payback periods, and stuff like that, and and I guess one of the things that stood out to it for us is if if we optimise a project on an EV per share basis, not necessarily on a project nav basis, um, so i.e. taking into account our cost of equity to to fund the you know pre development and and the project build, it actually makes a lot of sense for us to do a stage development and start with a mid sized project that's scalable. So we're currently undertaking a PA. Um, obviously, we can't publish in Australia, but we will publish in Canada. That's looking at a, a staged um, development, multi-phase development, where the project's established on high-grade oxide material, 
Um, you know, the current gold price, the, the economics on that from the internal work we've done look fairly compelling. Um, and even at $1,700, they look compelling um, and below that as well for that matter. So, you know, normally we'd be looking at a, you know, two gram head grade average for the first five to seven years just of oxide material. So um, we're doing the work now to basically validate our numbers. Um, but so far we've seen um, from that work, the numbers are landing in the range that we we thought they would. So we'd expect to have that work completed um, you know, probably June, I think, and not sure how long after that we get it out into the market. Um, obviously, you mentioned being listed on both the TSX mm. and the ASX, and I suppose it's created, obviously, a, a lot more work for you. What are the different requirements, um, the differences in, obviously, the requirements between the two exchanges that obviously creates this extra work? Yeah, well, I guess there's a couple of things here. One because the TSX is still our primary listing and Australia is a CDI, so a chest depository instrument, um, the, the governing exchange is still Canada. So for the ASX listing, we had to apply for a lot of exemptions from ASX rules, which, which we did receive. Um, but I guess having just done a small capital raise, that, that's kind of give a, given us a bit of an insight in to, I guess, some of the differences in approach, not only with the different exchanges, but also with the different capital markets, how people think about things. Um, but probably the biggest sticker for us is the 15% rule on the ASX, where you can only issue 15% new capital, including options, before you have to go to shareholder approval. Um, so we're having to do a two-tranche placement and have a have an AGM, which we're due to have anyway, but to approve the grant of the second tranche. In Canada, you don't do that. Um, but the process was also in Australia, it's a lot quicker and a lot less paperwork. Um, we didn't issue into Canada, and I, and I know that upset some Canadian shareholders that wanted to participate because the raise was fairly keenly priced. Um, but unfortunately, to have issued into Canadian residents probably would have added another $100,000 to the legals and, and complicated the raising process. Um, so there's a few things like that. Um, and then on the, the management side, um, in Canada, we just have a rolling option plan that, that gets approved by shareholders, just boilerplate. Um, we do an option grant every year. Um, that's not typical in Australia. So the way we've remunerated management, we'll we have to think about how we do that because it doesn't necessarily align between the two different marketplaces and the expectations. So there's a few things like that that we need to to kind of work through. Um, but I think for us, um, you know, we think the ASX and that marketplace, you know, there's been a lot of success over the years of Australian juniors going to Africa, you know, Perseus, West African, Card, plenty of the point. So we, we think that, you know, understands it's Africa as a jurisdiction and probably more accepting of some of the idiosyncrasies of this part of the world compared to Canada. Um, but time will tell, but I, I do know it has created more work for us while we um, we get to understand things. I mean, one of the things that has happened with the dual listing is we've gone from, even though we're listed on the Venture Exchange on the TSX, we have to comply with main board rules now from filings and that. So that's created a heap of work for my CFO. Um, so he's been beavering away to get all that paperwork done. Um, so yeah, there's there's kind of quirks like that as well. Um, 
AGM materials are a lot more comprehensive than what they they were and what they should be as well. Uh, but yeah, so we just worked through it. But if it gets our cost of capital down, then I think the exercise is worth it. Yeah, certainly. Um, can you just obviously you mentioned um, um, obviously Endeavour that have a, a asset quite close by. Um, yeah. I just wondered whether you can just tell us a little bit more about obviously the the jurisdiction, the the area uh, that you're yeah. in, and obviously your your neighbours, um, and yeah. if there's any surges around around anything that you're going to be doing um and obviously the result uh, the, the the resource within the the area as well yeah it's um i think earlier on I, I kind of mentioned that we we like that part of the world geologically a lot um we, we've actually got we've actually got three projects in southwest Bikina. um one's the sanatura project one's kumandara which is a separate early stage exploration play and the other one's a joint venture with Endeavour that joins our Sanatura project. Um, that's called Karen Casso, and that has about 700,000 ounces on it. They manage that. Um, we've got around 18% interest. We vended some ground in to get that. Um, and then between that joint venture and Sanatura, because uh, Karen Casso is kind of an upside-down L-shape, um, the the... Endeavour have another project there called Bantu and they've just put out an updated resource on that. Um, I, I think it's 1.2 million ounces or 1.2 grams or something, but there's two deposits there. One's a kind of a lower grade um, thing, I think 1.2, and then they've got another high grade thing um, that runs four or five grams. So, um, And they're about five or six kilometres from our Tankoro deposit. So that's kind of pretty interesting. We've obviously had a lot of discussions with Endeavour about how this area might come together and pre-Endeavour it was Semifo. we had a similar discussion pre that it was Orbis we had a similar discussion so but they all want to drill it so um, I think though the point is is that the endowment in that area is quite significant so just between Endeavour's ground and our Tankoro deposit there's 3.7 million ounces delineated at the moment within a six kilometre radius. And I'd say 70 or 80% of that's within 150 metres of surface. So it hasn't been pushed to depth at all. Um, there's multiple styles of mineralisation as well as you run through the through that part of the belt. So the high grade in Bantu is different to the low grade, which is different to our porphyries. And uh, I mentioned this flat area we've just drilled that's pretty exciting, that's different again. So. We do like complexity, geological complexity, and there's a lot of gold in the area. So I think the ultimate value play in this area is to put it all together. Um, but I think the important thing for us is that, you know, we do have a standalone mine. Uh, we think Endeavour's got a long way to go on band two before it's of a scale that kind of ticks their box. So it'll be intriguing to see how that plays out, but we'll just push ahead with what we can control. Um, and I think, you know, we'll see where things land with this PEA that we're doing at the moment, but we think a low capital, you know, stage development um, with very rapid payback and very good, you know, economics um, is something that we can push ahead and fund. I think that's probably the key thing, you know, funding projects in Burkina is a challenge. Um, so I guess more will be revealed when we put the PEA, PEA out on how we're approaching that. Um, but it is a little bit novel 
um, on how we're doing it. Um, but I think, you know, when you look at Sarama, our background, you know, it may be a little different to some of our other junior peers in, in that, you know, my background's operations, Paul Schmidy, who works with me, who's looking after the project. Um, he's, his background's operations. He's a pretty high-end engineer, that guy. And um, uh, so we're looking at doing a, you know, a modular build where it's fabricated off-site and, you know, assembled, numbered, broken down, reassembled on site, uh, amongst other things. So, um, yeah, shortens timeframes and lowers the skill level required on site to put something up and and should accelerate the development timeframe and reduce the opportunity for capex overruns and stuff like that as well. So, but like I say, that'll we're working on that now, or should I say, Paul is, and uh, um, when you know when that comes out. I think it should set out a fairly clear picture on on how we think the project should move forward within the environment where we work. And when do you expect to put the PEA out? Um, barring any delays from the engineers involved, that's the hardest thing. It's uh, obviously mining's a pretty busy business, and there is in your business, I'm sure you understand. There's a skill scarcity of skills that we need. Um, but putting that to a side, I'd, I'd kind of hope it's going to be around June. Um, hopefully, kind of end of May, early June, be available for internal review by the board and looking at anything else we need to do. So it's kind of that timing mid-year. Um, we'll get it, get it out, publish it. We can't publish it in Australia because we're using inferred resources. Probably two-thirds will be inferred, um, but we can in Canada. It's it's basically 43101 compliant PA, you know, done to the full form reports. We'll publish that in Canada. We'll get filed on CEDAR. Um, in Australia, all we'll be able to do is reference that we've done an economic study and the outcome was positive. Um, but, you know, anybody who wants to look up the project economics or challenge what we've done, uh, they'll be able to find all the, all the work on CEDAR. As you've obviously your experience in the gold market. Um, I just wondered if you can give us your interpretation of the, the gold macro environment at the moment um, and where you see sort of gold heading. Yeah, very interesting question. Um, I think it's pretty, a, pretty open as well. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a question you could ask a thousand people and get a thousand different answers. But yeah. I, I think there's probably a couple of, the, the, you know, there's obviously the global macro the economic environment and US dollar argument and all that. And then there's the whole supply and demand side of things as well. So, you know, given the shift in cost bases, um, you know, governments wanting a bigger piece of, you know, mining revenues and stuff like that, it's difficult to see much in the way of new production coming online in, you know, sub $1,500, $1,600 gold environment. You just wouldn't get the funding to build something, even if you're a big producer, I think they'd question it. So I think, think there's probably a flaw there in the gold price on, on that side of things. Um, if you look back over the last three years, gold's probably spent as much time below $1,800 an ounce as it ha um, above it as it has been below 1800 bucks. So in a way, you'd probably say, well, there's probably, you know, the last three years is this kind of $1,800 an ounce hacking medium. Um, and I think if you look at it now and if you look at kind of long-term gold prices, um, 
I, I think we're probably you know moving into a bit of a another shift in the gold price. That's what it feels like. Um, I say you have the supply and demand fundamentals, but I think overlaying over that is um, um, you know, the global macro picture. You know, so it's not only geopolitical. I think geopolitical incidents have a short-term impact on gold, so that's kind of noise kind of on long-term trends. So, you know, so when Russia invaded Ukraine, gold spiked and then it fell off just as quick. I think I'm more interested in the state of the you know, global financial system um, I think the fact that you're seeing central banks, um, particularly Russia, China, India, and whatever, doing a lot of gold buying is, is fairly telling. Um, you know, there is a push to diversify off the US dollar, um, but I think that's going to be pretty hard, to be honest. But um, but I think, you know, there's a race to the bottom with currencies and the US is part of that. And we're seeing the US dollar soften off. And, and I would have thought it would have softened off sooner than it has, to be honest. Um, so I guess in that event, you know, I would see, you know, gold price moving up where it goes to, I, I don't know, but I guess I'd like to see it solidify at 2000. I think getting, breaking through the 2000 mark, I mean, I said it dropped through, back through it today, but I think that was important for the longer term picture. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's more reasons for gold to go up than down if you look at it for all the different things that drive it. And, um, you know, if, if we ended this year, you know, north of 2000 bucks an ounce, I'd say that's not, you know, not a bad outcome. You know, maybe we fluctuate between 2000 and 2100 through the course of the year. Um, all things being equal, um, maybe the range is instead of being plus minus 1800 bucks, maybe it becomes plus or minus 2000 for, for a while. Um, for us, at two thousand bucks, like Sanatura, absolutely makes a screaming amount of money. Um, you know, paybacks under a year on what we're proposing. So, two thousand is a good price. Like it's, um, you know, it equates to three thousand in Australian dollars an ounce. So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, when you look at it, the whole global picture, you know, in the supply and demand side. Yeah, I think there's a pretty strong argument for gold to move up. I wouldn't sit there and say it's going to go to five, ten thousand bucks, but it, you know, if it goes up ten percent this year, then I'd, I'd say that's probably, you know, what I that's what I think it'll probably do. What price would you say where it should be? Where a lot of the gold miner, whether you're a gold miner or whether you're a producer or a developer, where would you say they would like the gold price to be? And situated and above, would it be two thousand, um, or maybe a little bit more? I, I think any gold producer now that's not happy with two thousand bucks an ounce needs to have a good look in the mirror. To be honest, um, I know cost bases have gone up quite a lot, um, but also ore body quality has gone down quite a lot as well. Um, which is what happens when gold price goes up. You, you start mining you know, more marginal gear and mines that have been shut get recycled. Um, but I would, if they're not happy with 2000 bucks an ounce, I'd be pretty surprised. Um, obviously, everyone wants, everyone wants a higher gold price. Um, but I think, um, you know, 2000 bucks is, is a pretty good 
is a pretty good price for, for gold. Um, I always get concerned when it runs up too quickly because, you know, when things move up quickly, they fall quickly. I prefer just a long-term build in the gold price. And I think if you're an investor, that's that's what you should be looking at anyway. I, I don't. You can speculate on gold and punt it, but, you know, really it's, to me, it's a longer-term thing and then you obviously have different segments in the market you know like we're in the risky end of the market but the returns are potentially very high um to your new months of the world who just you know a cash box so um but i think if you look back to 2000 um you know gold's outperformed um the the um dow by like 50 percent or 60 percent or something so i think that that's kind of the view I think investors should be taking on gold. It's not something you hold for six or twelve months. It's it's something that it's it's a long term store of wealth. And I think you know with all the the debasement of currencies now, if you look, you know, when I meet family offices and that, their job's not to get a twenty percent return on on their portfolio. Their job's to preserve the family's wealth, um, and and you know maintain its purchasing power and maybe give a bit better return on top of that. Um, that's why they all hold a bit of gold in their portfolio because that's that's their job, right? So, and I think that's that's what gold provides um, over the the longer term is 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 that is is that kind of base component in your portfolio. And I, I think now you know you want to hold hard assets, whether it's land or gold or real estate or whatever, um, because your currencies are buying less and less and less and whether you're sitting in the UK, US, Australia, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's very noticeable that your purchasing power has declined a lot more than what inflation says it should have. Yeah, certainly. I agree with everything you said there. Um, ESG, just wanted to just tell us uh, a few things around your sort of ESG governance and, and what you've been doing. Yeah, it's it's kind of fairly core to what we do um you know it's the way we've always operated back in you know at moto in the congo it was the same um you know there we had a clinic we built a clinic a birthing hospital um we did a lot of work there because you know socially it was very degraded where we operated um and i guess that's you know how we operate in Burkina. we don't have the budget that we had in in congo um but, you know, we work closely with the local community. You know, we see ourselves as guests in in in, in their community. We may have the, the mineral rights, but we don't have absolute rights. So, you know, before we even do anything, we sit down with the local communities and discuss what we want to do. And, you know, one of the kind of, I guess one of the key things for us is expectation management. I think it's pretty important. Um, you know, you don't want to disappoint people because at the end of the day, you're exploring and it's a very long journey from, exploration through to first production and you know not everyone's going to get a job not everyone's going to have a direct benefit so one of the keys for us is to you know be mindful of that and and work out how we build our, our programs around that and you know part of that for the stage of where we're at is you know as I said managing expectations but making sure you know the money that we do spend um, benefits as widely as possible and what we spend it on is done in consultation with our host communities. Um, I mean, we obviously stick to the kind of the three main pillars, which is in infrastructure, health, and education. Um, 
and, and focused really on on women and and children um because you know in a way that you know women do it a lot of the heavy lifting and the children are, are the future so we've built three where, where our main camp is we've built three um school classrooms we, we've doubled the student um intake there from 80 students to well over 200 now i think it's 240 um we have a food school food program there as well where all the kids get get lunch um the parents run that we provide the food um and we've also um had a project called the north karma project which we've done with a group out of perth where basically you know um goods from australia have been repurposed so uh you know just for example a law firm rebrands and they're five thousand pens and pads that they don't you know they don't know what to do with um so all of that stuff you know we filled up a a shipping container we ship it we distribute it locally um and, and that that has quite a, a huge benefit I, I think the first time we did it i think five thousand school kids benefited from it i think the last lot we did it was two thousand kids plus medical supplies and everything else that we bring into the area so i, I guess to you know kind of sum up what we do is you know it's a lot of consultation and work with community you know show them the respect that they deserve make sure our employees follow same um you know we have community liaisons that, that we deal with so if we want labor and things like that so that they're the decision makers not us um you know we've got a community garden where we grow all our own produce and excess goes to the school and the community um but yeah i think the main thing is working in sync with the local community and try and get them to understand where you're trying to take the business and and how they fit with that going forward um yeah, we see mining as a big enabler in particularly in poor countries. Um, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, are anti-mining and whatever, but, you know, these people have a right to, you know, a reasonable existence as well. You know, it's not up to somebody sitting in their inner city cafe sipping the latest style of coffee latte or whatever to determine what someone who's just, you know, living by subsistence means whether they should have an opportunity or not. So, um, you know, we, we we can't help everyone, but if we can enable the communities within the area of where we operate to to grow um, and give their kids opportunity, whether it's direct opportunity or through education, and it can only be beneficial. And then if those, you know, some of those people wind up in government administration or whatever, then we're equally happy for that because it can only help the country in the longer term. Do you work with other mining companies like Endeavour um, around ESG initiatives or do you tend to keep, each company keeps their ESG initiatives to themselves and work work with them, work with the local community on their on their proposals and, and work? Or, or or do you? I mean, do you meet up every so often to to see what you can can do for the local communities? No, generally, you know, my experience has been that companies do their own thing because everybody's got a little bit different approach and everybody's got different funding capabilities. Um, I think everybody operates around the same three things, which is you know infrastructure, health, and, and education. Um, but you know, Endeavour's capability is a lot different to ours. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think, you know, the themes are common, but the execution is different. Um, I've, I had seven or eight years on a, 
the board of a group in Australia called AMEG, which is the Australian African Mining and Energy Group, um, which is a lot to do with you know corporate governance, ESG, uh, you know, anti corruption stuff and all that. So, um, it, it's I, I was sat on that board for a long time, and and a lot of the I guess that was initially established really to try and help companies, particularly new entrants into Africa, um, give them a bit of a, I guess, a jump start on the whole ESG side of things um, to, to, you know, properly manage that area and also create a network for people to, I guess, share ideas and and uh, communicate. So I think AMEG's played, you know, an important role. Uh, and one of its bigger roles, actually, I think, is educating government in Australia and that who uh, don't don't necessarily have the access to information that we do. Um, but yeah, that that's what that group has been set up for, and I think that plays a kind of key role because the last thing a company needs and what the re- you know and the rest of us operating in the industry here need is to somebody to come in and really mess up. Um, it's bad for everyone. Um, so, you know, that I guess that's been my way of kind of approaching that side of things is, you know, Endeavour will do what they do, WAF will do what they do, um, Persis will do what they do, and they've all got different financial resources to us. And then you have companies at our end where it's more about how you deal with the local community, treating them with respect, uh, managing expectations, um, you know, how you deal with government and things like that. So they don't cost a lot of money, but have a very high impact. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple more questions. Um, obviously, you're in Burkina Faso at the moment. I just wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about the current environment and the sediment uh, in country, um, maybe over during the, since the beginning of this year. Um, yeah. Obviously, people within the mining industry hear many different stories, many different mm. obviously different news outlets will portray Burkina Faso as probably a, a dangerous and not not necessarily safe place to go yeah obviously you're there now what 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 is what is the country like now what what's happening um and what do you see happening in the future yeah it's kind of an interesting question um we've obviously been involved in the country for you know over 10 years so We've seen governments come and go. We've seen coups. We've seen changes in presidents and and whatever. We've seen the insurgency in the north develop as well under the civilian government. Um, So I I guess it's kind of been, um, you know, one better term, kind of an interesting journey. But I guess when I worked in the Congo, we had to deal with the Lord's Resistance Army. And when we first went in there, they were still disarming rebels. So it's kind of not new to us. Um, but I think one of the key things with a country like Burkina, which isn't a small country, I think it's really important to understand the granularity of the security situation and what drives what drives the problems in different areas. So, you know, there's... There's obviously there's there's fundamentalism, that, but I, I think the ultimate driver is economic or money, right? So um, all through Western Africa, you, you know, there's various contraband routes and illicit gold mining and whatever. 
and so people are obviously looking, seeking to profit off of that. And so it all gets quite a complex picture. But I, I think for people sitting outside the country that aren't involved, I, I think the, the the thing for them to try and understand is the granularity of what's going on, where you can operate, where you can't operate, uh, what you need to do to operate. Um, and it, that's that's kind of one thing. And then I think from our side, actually operating on the ground, you know, we did 20,000 metres of drilling last year. Uh, we were in the southwest. We didn't run any security. We don't have security on our camp. Um, we should start drilling again soon. And then we probably will upgrade security a bit. Um, and we've seen, you know, bandits through the area come and go, be chased out or whatever by the government. So I think, you know, operating here now is to say that it's easy would be a lie you know it is it is complex and it, it is challenging um but you can get things done and i think if you look at ozone you know they've just brought bombore on you know that mine on on time on budget um prior to that waf brought sambrato on ahead of schedule on budget um you know both are looking at expansions or waf looking at the 500 million dollar build at kiaka and ozone's looking at an expansion so i think you know, those companies demonstrate that you can get things done. Um, you just have to manage accordingly. Um, it, it For us, it's it's the same. And probably the bigger challenge for us is with the various, you know, changes in heads of government. Um, we've seen changes in, you know, heads of administration, heads, you know, ministries and stuff like that. So things that we've got held up, you know, like permit reissues and stuff like that, they just get slowed down. Um, the bureaucrats that we deal with, you know they're good that's the same guys all the time but it's the guys making the decisions above them um and then the government here is, is obviously very focused on dealing with the insurgency um i think from where we sit they're probably making progress um which is good um down where we work you know they've been kind of proactive um we're seeing them be proactive in other areas of the country it's still generating a lot of bad headlines but um, I think it's the first time we've actually seen the government be proactive. Um, the the predecessor to the current president, I think he talked a lot, but I don't know how much he actually did. And the civilian government prior to that is really when things got out of hand up in the north. So um, there's a big, big focus on the government by the government here on getting things, you know, back under control and that permeates everything you know every every decision being made so we have to be mindful of that but we also understand what what they're trying to do um and you know i think it's you know it's been various critics around the world because they're not it's not a democratically elected government um you know they, they've got a few different countries offside and maybe you're talking to a few countries the west doesn't like but at the end of the day the that you know they government's dealing with a pretty serious problem and that you know they're, they're trying to do something about it so um but you know where i sit in in where i'm in bikina yeah you know, i flew in the other night just went through the airport in 10 minutes um you know guys picked us up at the airport and drove back to the office and you know just kind of get on with business um you know we have one of our local um 
uh, one of our local consultants in yesterday and she kind of made the comment and she's quite an international person and she kind of made the comment that, you know, um, yeah, everybody looks at the country and sees it as all bad, but she just kind of shrugs her shoulder and says, we just get on with it. So, um, yeah, I was going to ask, because obviously being in recruitment, um, I do get candidates occasionally say that if there's a country, if there's an area that they wouldn't, wouldn't want to go to is Burkina Faso. So yeah. I just wondering if you could give any advice if there is obviously people listening to this podcast that may be looking looking at a new opportunity and it could be in West Africa and it could be Burkina Faso or even maybe Mali. Is there any yeah. advice that you could give them to, I suppose, reassure them that if they were going to consider a role in con- in country, some of the things that they may be, maybe they need to think about? Um, yeah. Look, I, I think they need to, I think first and foremost, they need to keep an open mind. Um, they, they need to yeah, understand where they're going to work, who they're going to work for, because um, obviously some companies are better than others and some companies manage their risk better than others or differently to others. So if, if I was them looking at something, I wouldn't just blanket right off a jurisdiction, you know, whether it's Burkina, Mali, Ivory Coast, Guinea, you know, Pick, take your pick. Every jurisdiction's got its challenges, um, and I don't think it doesn't matter which one you go to. They're, they're just different challenges. So, I, I think, I think if I was to kind of have any kind of counsel, it would be to make sure you fully understand the the situation of the country, the situation on the ground, and, and have a frank conversation with the people who are employing you, um, but keep an open mind. Um, and I think you just need to look at, you know, where you're going to work and and what that project's actually like and where it sits in the country. So, you know, if you look at WAF and Orzone, they're both 100 kilometres from Ouagadougou. Um, you know, we're in the southwest of the country, so we're kind of different again. Um, but I, I think it's, if you're looking at going to these places, it's probably more the idiosyncrasies of working in Africa and the jurisdictions that you're at are probably a bigger challenge than what else is going on in the country. And lastly, um, just wondering if you can give us uh, the outlet for sort of next nine to 12 months or the remainder of this year, um, what you guys, I suppose, what you guys are, are doing and yeah. maybe expect. Yeah, the um, one of the things I've kind of been doing in country here is just having a look at what we can or can't afford to do drilling-wise. So we'll probably... Um, stick some holes in our kind of number one target at Bondi um, in the next couple of months. Um, and, and uh, you know, historically there's some outstanding drill results there. Um, so we'll, we'll get some holes into that. But really the main focus at the moment is to get this PEA completed, um, obviously get that out into the market so people can see the value that we see in, in the project um, and then lay out, what the next steps are. So part of the part of the reason for doing a PEA is to, I guess, make a call on whether we want to pursue a larger stick build that's probably a one fifty million plus dollar exercise with a couple more years of drilling, um, or go a phased development and accelerate, you know, the project. Um, I think the PEA kind of should answer that. Um, 
So once that's completed, then that'll be setting out what the next set steps are for us um, going forward. And um, and then we'll need to look at how best to finance that. So one of the things the PA will do is help us have more informed decisions with various groups that will fund the next stage or will fund the development. But there's some groups we've spoken to that will fund some of the pre-development capital as well. So I think that'll be a big focus of ours between now and the end of the year once the PEA is done and assuming it lands where we expect it to, we'll be looking at how we're going to fund the next stages of development and make sure the market, you know, fully understands the value of the project. Um, and then in the background, we'll kind of do a bit of drilling that's going to feed in, you know, feed directly into the next step of the project. Um, probably the pre-development funding is probably going to be around 10 million bucks because we obviously have to do infill drilling and and work like that. But um, that, that'll really be the focus for the second half of this year once the PEA is done is just working out what the next steps are, how best to execute them and how to fund it. Well, I wish you well uh, for the rest of the, the remainder of the year. Really appreciate you uh, obviously giving us an update on, uh, on uh, the project and obviously the company, and give us an update on the environment in Burkina Faso. And it may be not as bad as some of the news outlets uh, portraying Burkina Faso um, is at the moment. It seems to be reasonably safe. Like you said, you need to do your due diligence if you were looking to visit the country. Um, If if our audience wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions, um, how can they go about doing that? What social media platforms are you on we're on uh we use linkedin and and twitter um as you can tell by my lack of hair and color of what hair that is there i'm not really a social media junkie but um the best way if you want to get in touch with us is to probably go through um email go to info at saramaresources.com or go to our website uh saramaresources.com um but the info um, email we check a couple of times a week so if you send something we don't answer immediately don't um, think we're ignoring you it just you know everything bombs into that so we have to go through it and see what's what's in there but that's probably the best way is to contact us through that or I'm sure if they know you then I'm sure you'd be quite happily to forward, my, forward, forward them on to me as well yep certainly we can do that and we include those details in the show notes yeah. of companies anyway so um but, well yeah we're which... always happy to to talk about the project and you know give our views of of Bikina. um we you know we try to be pragmatic about it it's it does have its issues i think the important thing is to understand it you know there are parts of the country that's no go but there's other parts where you can operate yeah no and i pre- appreciate you uh, offering that advice as well um because i suppose it could be daunting for someone looking to consider that and it just listens all all the various mm. news and especially if you're searching for searching for things and all you're seeing is sort of red flags it's uh it, 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 it appreciate you obviously offering your advice if anyone does want to uh, reach out to you and just get your take on yeah. everything that's happening at the moment in country yeah it's i think it's it's probably the most difficult part is there's so much like misinformation or people just love to pile on stuff. Yeah, even the other day, Command Endeavour said they were, um, you know, offloading 
some mines in Burkina Faso. So the headlines that were getting run everywhere was Endeavour's exiting Burkina Faso. And if they did exit Burkina Faso, they'd go from a one and a half million ounce a year producer to a 640,000 ounce a year producer. So that's just kind of one example. I, I, I'm not speaking for Endeavour or anything like that, but the, the, yeah. The, the 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 comment actually made by Sebastian was at the BMO conference, and I think he made a, a, a corporate update as well, was that Bungu and Wahinyon, so two of their mines here, they'll look to, to offload them. And if you look at Endeavour, that's been their history. They buy and sell mines and continually upgrade their portfolio. So, um, yeah, so people kind of just tend to grab stuff and run with it and uh, yeah, and the only the reason I know those things on Endeavour is because I've had questions continually on it, saying, "Oh, this is bad." Endeavour's exiting Burkina, and um, and so well, you know, I'm not inside the tent, but here's a few things that you probably need to look at. But um, yeah, we're well, under no illusions that it's an, an easy place to work, but uh, so it's got a transparent and modern mining code, and the government's pretty focused on dealing with the the bigger problems I've got at the moment. So, uh, you know, they understand the importance of the industry, but at the same time, you, you know, they're kind of fighting for their country. So the, you can understand why there's a lot of focus on that. Yeah. Well, really appreciate your time, Andrew. Um, and yeah. those that are listening, um, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, please share this with other people within the mining industry and, and I'm encouraging people to share this episode for, to people outside of the mining industry because what we also want to do is not just educate the mining industry but also educate those that are not in the mining industry That because um, obviously we need to improve the branding of mining uh, globally. So um, I do encourage you to, to please share it, keep sharing these episodes. So until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.